This is all that is left of a wall. There must be some kid getting 150 grand. <laughs> it's that perfect collision of time, place and loud ties. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure on news. <laughs> Just cross that four out, but a five. The Marvel and DC of ice cream. Imperial phase Matthew Corbett. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington. And welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about some of the things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. Right in front of me right now is A Groovy Place, the lone 1996 album by the Mike Flowers Pops, which includes their Apex Twin collaboration Freebase, no, really, and the Velvet Underground medley. Maybe not quite the novelty one-hit wonder that most people seem to think then. What would have been more convenient, though, is if it had been the soundtrack album from Pop and Stuff, an eye-hurting 1970 film featuring naggingly catchy bubblegum-site pop songs and humans in huge cartoony animal costumes, which, following a random showing one Saturday morning on ITV, I was for a long time convinced that only I remembered. Because that would have made it that bit easier to link into novelist Susie Norman talking about another quite similar film that whizzed hallucinogenically around her childhood. Basically, when I was very, very small, there was this very terrifying animated film that would occasionally show up. And in fact, my mother still talks about it to this day. She says, do you remember Suze? She's Welsh. Do you remember Suze, that film about the hippo? And you used to cry your heart out at the end. And it's true, because right at the end, the little hippo gets locked in a cage and taken away. And I, it's one of my first memories, is sobbing my heart out. But it was a very, very dark film. It's kind of a strange story, and it's a bit of a convoluted story. If I remember rightly, there were hippos, and there were too many of them. So this guy wants to get rid of them all, and he hires what looked like Arabs, what looked like sort of Bin Laden-type Arabs with tea towels on their head kind of thing, to shoot up these hippos that were kind of floating across the sky in a psychedelic way. But... There was a really protracted massacre that was completely inappropriate for a children's film. It just went on and on and on, just killing hippos. But there were some really sort of nice songs in there, like Mr. Mabowal. So there's really upbeat songs in it too. But Mr. Mabowal was was pretty racist, really. I mean, it was this black guy who was evil. And he had massive beige lips, which was kind of strange. And he had all these weird posters up around his house. And he was basically evil. So my memory is fairly sketchy, but I've never forgotten it. And it's always stuck in my mind as being one of those weird psychedelic type 70s dark animation films. I wonder if anyone else remembers it. Well, there was a load of them around that time. Films were... My view is that adults thought, oh, children like this. I'm like, no, they don't. They like Donald and Mickey falling over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't like things like, what? I can never remember the name of it, that horrendous one that used to really bother me as a child, where it's like animated sort of Victorian stuff and sort of like real-life celebrities on films looking in, and it's where Rolf Harris dresses an undertaker sings that whiskey on a Sunday song. <laughs> yeah. It used to go right through me as a child. But they'd always show up on things like Bank Holidays on the TV. 
And also on screen test, which I think I might have seen a bit of Hugo the Hippo on that. They were too cheap to pay for, like, you know, Star Wars or anything on screen test. They just have any old tat that was lying around on the BBC shelves. Yeah. Also, it's one of those those sort of cartoons I really associate with the early days of home video. And looking into it, I found out that until recently, Hugo the Hippo's only release over here was on the pre-cert video which is technically illegal now because it doesn't have a certificate. <laughs> and judging from your description of some of the characters in it, maybe that's no bad thing. It was actually released by, I couldn't believe this, and this story gets weirder still, Either Film Services, who put out a few of the very, very third division video nasties like Night of the Bloody Apes, but they also put out stuff like Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, Dark Star, The Cherry Picker, which is that weird Spike Milligan and Lulu film that nobody can find now, and also Take an Easy Ride, that weird film about hitchhiking. They put that out on VHS way back when. And it's (laughs) weird to think that they all shared shelf space with Hugo the Hippo, but it gets even stranger because... This is possibly why the film is so elaborate and fancy and had such big names involved. It was produced by the short-lived Brute Film Studio. Now, you might be thinking, that can't be linked to Brute the fragrances, surely? Yes. (laughs) Really? Yeah, they had a film studio for about (laughs) two years. And as far as I can tell, they did a couple of films with Elliot Gould in, which he now hates. I don't know what was going on there. Also, The Night Watch, which is a British horror film with Elizabeth Taylor, and weirdly, A Touch of Class with Glenda Jackson, which is actually a really good film. Uh And then they did Hugo the Hippo, and then they stopped. (laughs) Really? What was that all about? So Hugo the Hippo was their last effort, was it? Right. That makes me love it all the more, then. Well, it has a very weird visual style as well, because... A lot of those things were kind of aping Yellow Submarine, except this looks like somebody's seen rhubarb as well. Yes. Because it's like a sun with a big, wobbling, smiling face and all kinds of things like that. that Put it somewhere uneasily between the two. That's right. I mean, it's very dark, but it's also very melancholy in a way that I'm not sure that cartoons are anymore. I think me and you were talking about this once, weren't we? When we were talking about Eye for the Engine. And how desperately sad that was. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those sort of slow action cartoons, wasn't it? Nothing happened, really. But it would make you feel very, very sad. And I think the interesting thing about Hugo the Hippo was there would have been an emotional journey for me to go on, having seen it. Because as a child, I would have completely invested in those hippos and what happens to them. And the injustice of how these tea-toweled, masochists were behaving so there must have been some kind of story arc that really worked on some level yeah there were quite often things on the tv in those sort of slots where you would end them thinking even a small child i'm not sure i was actually entertained by that but it would trigger something to keep you watching until the end i mean probably the fact that children do quite enjoy violence and i think children do quite enjoy feeling sad as well and modern animation doesn't particularly indulge either of those two things well that's true but there's also the fact there was nothing else on and nothing else to do and particularly the christmas holidays did you ever see the have you ever seen the pied piper with donovan which is terrifying 
that was on a couple of times on ITV in the early 80s. That should not have been on in a children's slot, even as a children's film. It was. There's nothing entertaining or upbeat about that at all. It's horrendous. And his songs aren't even any good in it, either. He's a great songwriter, isn't he, Donovan? Yeah, I think by the early 70s when it was made. He wasn't doing museum anymore, put it that way. And if you've ever seen The Pied Piper with Donovan, you know that it's, well, it's no I love my shirt, put it that way. Even so... Neither that nor the more dubious elements of you going hippo have anything on an episode of cosy American family costume drama The Waltons that designer and custodian of the Museum of Scarfuck Richard Littler was only too keen to talk about. It is very wrong. I mean, the entire thing <laughs> is inappropriate and it's not what children should be watching. It's, uh, I and mean, I remember seeing it when I was, obviously when it, when it was first broadcast, so that was 1978, as you said. You know, you'd watch the news as a kid and there'd be IRA and, and you know, all sorts of terrible things happening in the world. So you'd, you'd put on BBC Two to try and calm down and watch something completely innocent like the Waltons. But on this particular episode, of course, what we have is uh, what starts out as Jason Walton going for a, a job at a local news, uh, a local radio station where he's going to give love advice. And so you think, yeah, you're watching this. It's absolutely fine. Suddenly, you go to bl- uh, plot B, and it's about Elizabeth Walton, who starts experiencing strange phenomena, and it's very quickly revealed to be a poltergeist. So that we have images of... Yeah, you see rocking chairs jumping up and down and and uh, swinging, obviously, uh, uh, rocking rather, not swinging. And you see a strange doll sort of half walking towards her uh, and knockings. And it was it's absolutely hideous. I mean, what they thought, putting that in a, in a family show, I really don't know. Well, there's the double thing going on here. There were a lot of, particularly children's shows, that went off script in this manner. I mean, the one that although I didn't see it myself at the time, that I always think of was, it's best known to me as the episode of The Adventures of Black Beauty with skeletons in cloaks. Which <laughs> I, I always seem to miss it. I think it's like a satanic ritual thing to do with the whole, yeah. I don't know, but kids in school are talking, oh, do you see Black Beauty when there were the skeletons <laughs> in the cloaks? We think, what are you all talking about? So yeah, there yeah. was that. But also, there's a weird thing at that time. I mean, I think for some reason, I don't know why, but people in the 70s seem to be especially credulous about the paranormal for no yeah. readily obvious reason. But there's a real thing about Poltergeist around that time. Because this is, you know, this is four years before Poltergeist the movie. Mm-hmm. And there were yeah. all kinds of books and magazines and so on about Poltergeists. And I've never known whether, I mean, obviously I think it's a hoax, but whether it's been established as a hoax or not, it's the Enfield Poltergeist, which I think would get covered on the news didn't it? Well, exactly. It was, it was a nationwide special. And uh, so, you know, they gave it so, a decent amount of coverage. It was, again, you know, it's, what are you doing showing that to kids? Especially someone like me who was a very nervous child. It was absolutely horrifying. I mean, I was profoundly terrified seeing, you know, at six o'clock in the evening after watching, you know, Laurel and Hardy or whatever it was, or actually probably uh, Ivor the Engine, watching this girl scream and shout in a demonic voice talking about marbles flying around the room and policemen seeing girls flying through the air i mean it was just absolutely hideous later i found out and it's actually it's really interesting do you know who was called in as an expert in the enfield case ray allen the ventriloquist what Really? Ray, yeah, this, is, this is i know exactly yeah it's ray allen was called as a as, a, as an expert and he uh, was to investigate the vocalizations by Janet, uh, the girl. His conclusion was that uh, it was trickery. 
But what about Lord Charles? What's his conclusion? But if it was a nationwide special, did they have Richard Still go singing like, oh, you'll think <laughs> twice when you've met the Enfield Poltergeist? <laughs> yeah, actually, he did miss that, unfortunately. That's, <laughs> they, they missed the trick there. But in the Walsons, it turns out to be a real poltergeist caused by the onset of puberty because it's her birthday, isn't it? She is, exactly. She's turned of age, as they say, and um, it's uh, believed that she is emotionally distraught and is, and is generating this, this strange uh, phenomenon. The Enfield case is the same because the so-called dead guy, the poltergeist, Bill, they said that it was odd that he was quite obsessed with periods and menstruation. And uh, and it, so it's exactly the same kind of story as, as the Waltons. Well, it's just kind of floored me because I had no idea this episode even existed. Because to me, because mm. I grew up in the mainly female household and... I paid little attention to the Waltons, but it was always on. And it always seemed to me to be that they were going to a dance and Grandma's old beau would be there. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the only storyline. So how does the poltergeist come into it? Well, I think the old beau died. Um, that's the problem. <laughs> I, don't, I have this vague memory of it being her grandfather. I remember one episode in which he died, and I don't know if the two episodes were connected. There must have been eight million episodes of the Waltons, and, and it was always on. And it's the only episode I, I, I remember. Did it end with, you know, when they used to say, you know, good night, Jim Bob, good night, good night, Mary mm. Ellen, good night, yeah. good night, John Boy. Did it end with the poltergeist turning all the lights back on after the beat exactly on and off or a knock <laughs> he says he says good night in morse code yeah. yeah i'd completely forgotten about this completely banal story about uh, jason walton getting a job on the local radio i mean who cares yeah also what love advice could jason give he was was he the red-haired one that's the one yeah, yeah exactly yeah, he never had any luck with dates did he so what was he doing doling out romantic tips well, I think the theme of the entire episode was horror. And from horror to sci-fi, as Richard stayed around for an extra bit of chat about a very unusual showing of 2001 A Space Odyssey, specially room for television by the BBC. I'm kind of torn on the idea whether I'd like it or not. Yeah, I know. It kind of interferes with some of the things I really like about 2001. Like, you know, the amazing scenes where there's no sound suddenly. Absolutely. And, yeah, you know, yeah. you could, I've always said you can hear the silence, if that makes sense. But yeah, yeah. To be distracted by twinkly stars at that point, what's it going to do to the whole Stargate sequence? I really don't know. It's going to negate that. But equally, I kind of like the fact that these things existed once. You know, the way you would get the big breakfast clock over Babylon 5 or that animated Graham Norton jumping up in front of a Doctor Who cliffhanger. I like the fact that they got it so wrong with these things sometimes. Yeah. And people try to forget it. But you'd think there would be some evidence out there because again 2001 is one of those things like there are occasionally choices on this where i think somebody somewhere recorded that yeah i know must have done and yet there's no evidence i mean you try finding the bbc edits of the monkeys somebody must have recorded them yeah yeah must have done but they're just not out there i know yeah 2001 somebody would have thought oh great not seen that since 1969 they got bowie probably recorded it actually that's the thing i mean that's and I get because I'm obsessive about tracking down these very lost, unique little moments in broadcasting. And you know, it is nice. I mean, like you say, it was a ridiculous idea at the time, but it's nice that it happened. And I'd love to be able to see it. I mean, that's, you know, I'd love to be able to see that again because it's such an odd thing to do. And it's back down to earth with a bang. 
right into the middle of Liverpool-based local commercial radio station Radio City, in fact, as writer Gary Bainbridge wanted to share his troubling memories of some of the station's DJs letting it be known that they had little time for this pesky new house music. In the olden days, you know, before your local radio station was taken over by a Dutch conglomerate and, mm. you know, and now they all have the same font, the same playlist and all of that. I used to listen to Radio City, which was the didn't commercial, didn't yeah. the commercial station for Liverpool and Merseyside. And you know, in those days, the DJs were like proper local personalities. Yeah. You know, they'd have um, they'd have these cars with the name on and the name of the radio station on. They'd drive around, and everybody knew it was them. It was awful. It must be like Alan Partridge, you know. <laughs> so, you think about the Radio City DJs if they were knocking on a bit, as all DJs were on radio mm. at that point. Jack Your Body went to number one in the chart. But it was the first house music single to get to number one. And the DJs weren't very happy about it. No. Because, you know, these weren't the sort of DJs that you'd get, you know, playing a set in a warehouse. Mm. These were the sort of DJs who'd cut the ribbon at a jumble sale, you know. <laughs> and they're listening to Jack Your Body. And the thing is, if you're standing in some sort of brick-built silo and you're off your face on ecstasy, <laughs> you're going to enjoy dancing to Jack Your Body. You might even go and buy it in the shops when you come out and go, oh, I love that song. But if you're sitting in a radio studio <laughs> and you've got Jack Your Body on the playlist in between the Eurythmics and Robert Palmer, <laughs> you're going to think it's absolutely shit. <laughs> so what happened was four DJs at Radio City did their own version of Jack Your Body, which was called Deadly Boring. So instead of going Jack, 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 Jack Your Body, it was Dead, 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 Deadly Boring. <laughs> and they set themselves up as the Boring Boys. And they rapped over the top of it, and it was the most dad thing that anybody yeah. has ever done. But then they brought it out as a single. Did they? Yeah, it did quite well locally. And I think that, I think they did it for the Radio City charity, which at the time was called Give a Child a Chance. Yes, yeah. Now, Radio City's version, a smaller version of Children in Need. Yeah, or Help a London Child, which is the one that we always were forced to buy those records by capital DJs for. Well, yeah. this is the thing that confused me. BBC is for all children. Yes. But apparently these other ones are just to help an individual child. Yeah. Which I think, there must be some kid getting 150 grand. <laughs> but no, I, I haven't been able to track down a copy of this thing. No. Now, I mean, I've been, I've contacted over the last year, I've contacted two of the DJs mm. who were involved because I want a copy of it. And even they haven't got a copy of it, yeah. which I think is absolutely mad because if I'd made a record, I'd have all the copies. Yeah. I guarantee it. No, because nobody else would have bought them. <laughs> well, I remember that well, but the reason I remember it is, I mean, it's a, I've got to say, it is a reasonably well-known fact that one of the first things I did was wrote some gags and characters for some of the younger Radio City DJs while I was still at school. I was not involved in Deadly Boring. I should make that absolutely clear. In fact, that slightly predates my involvement, but I just want to, that on the record, I was not involved. But I remember thinking that, you know, they were saying Jackie Body was Deadly Boring. Now... What do they consider not deadly boring? Because my memory of Radio City around that time was, you know, you had the younger ones, like like Tony Snell, you know, who was still one of my favourite DJs ever. It was uh, Kev Keating. They were quite reasonably down with 
comparatively with you know new south Side. but there were older guys there like you say guys in their late 30s and they're being generous still with the aviator shades still with the monogram cars they kind of they seem to regard it as an imposition if they had like anything that was actually in the chart even if it was like the way it is by bruce hornsby or you know the bangles or something they would be so begrudging about that they couldn't wait to get back to playing i mean the stuff i remember was they wouldn't let it go with the whole of the moon the year of the cat it's all the off the records <laughs> sweet freedom on michael mcdonald was just for years after that was a hit that was on endlessly yeah there was record that nobody remembers till they hear it standing outside in the rain by skipper wise but i gather he was actually dutch he was a bloke with a huge mullet and it was like it was number one in europe for about a year it's like this weird soft rock jazz thing with a massive saxophone all over it they just played that endlessly they wouldn't give up on the no. fact that it wasn't a hit they kept <laughs> on and on and on and uh, it's just this treble whiny wow. it's like a prototype scully delic thing oh the glamour boys by living color which is actually a good record but that was their kind of hey i like a young person's record but anything that was new or you know innovative or i hate to say it american and a bit black they yeah. didn't they didn't take well to at all no. you know and parodying rap is a bit I, I find it very old folkish. I mean, recently it was the top of the pops on BBC4 where it had three awful, awful, I'm going to say this, all awful novelty records making fun of rap and, you know, in a very down their nose sort of way. Yeah, you know, there was yeah. the, the Anfield rap, there was loads of money doing up the house yeah. and pump up the bitter by starting on 45 pints. You know, it was all kind of like saying, look at this silly new music. And people who were listening to local radio wanted to hear that stuff. <laughs> They did not want the year of the cat again, but uh, forgive me, Al Stewart, but you know. <laughs> I'm not massively urban myself. You know, my favourite rap record is, uh, is Rapture. <laughs> Blonde. <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. Fortunately, there were more convincing hip-hop vibes on offer when I appeared as a guest on the show, interviewed by previous guest Gareth F. Hirons, as one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the third single by an act that most people probably didn't realise even had a third single. This is It's a Shame by Criss Cross, the third single after obviously Jump and Warm It Up, which nobody remembers but I think was a top ten hit. This was the third one and weirdly it was like the proper serious one and I don't think it charted very highly at all. I think it might have scraped the top 40. Which is a shame because I think it's a tremendous record. I get quite annoyed that there's this idea now that crisscross were, you know, a throwaway novelty act and that there was an adult manipulating these two young boys. It's not strictly true. The records were, they sound quite credible, even though it's kids rap. And there have been kids rappers before that. There were quite a few in the 80s, you know, who aren't treated with the same disdain now. Their songwriter and manager, Jermaine Dupree, I think he was only about 19 himself at the time. That wasn't somebody exploiting. They were a proper band. They performed with Cypress Hill and Tim Dogg and people like that. And they weren't taken quite seriously at first. They did do a single called I Missed That Bus, which is possibly the worst idea anyone could have come up with but this was their attempt at actually addressing what it was quite in a sense new to us over here. i mean obviously there have been gang violence in america since the late 70s but 
The news media wasn't as pervasive then. It wasn't trying to scare us all all the time. Things took longer to come over. It was only really with things like Straight Out of Compton, Boys in the Hood and so on that we were aware that, you know, there were a lot of young men in black America just being drawn into this pointless cycle of violence, fighting over almost nothing really and shooting each other. And this is quite a savage record about it, except for the fact that, you know, they've got these blistering verses where they decide to call the major socio-cultural issue facing black America in the late 20th century a shame. (laughs) (laughs) The right event, it brings shame, but it didn't really travel that way as a song. It undercuts the message Mm. somewhat. There are good ways to express shame, (laughs) even using that one word. It doesn't seem to have hit home in this... uh, in this instance. So this is, as, as you said, the least successful of, and I think there was four singles released in the mm. US, and this was the fourth from, from their debut album, Totally Crossed Out. And the previous single in the US was I Missed the Bus. Mm. Uh, so it's quite the thematic leap to take from that to gang violence. And I wonder whether that's why this didn't do as well. Do you think it was too much of a jump for the audience to take, or do you think people were just a bit bored of crisscross by this point? I think it was... Both of those, but also a third thing, which is there were quite a few things in bits of the lyrics and particularly the video that undermined it further. I mean, the lyrics, you got things like, tell them Johnny's dead, a 14-year-old put a nine to his head, and without it, there ain't no future G. It's all quite bleak, but there's a bit where they appear to blame gang violence on Pac-Man. Yes. Genuinely! <laughs> I, I absolutely noticed this. Uh, an offhand examination of the lyrics shows that Pac-Man somehow gets dragged into this. Yes. I've done anyone be bringing Pac-Man into this. I know he's got a problem with the pills, but I don't think he needs to needs to gat anyone to get them. But also, in the third verse, they like take on the gang members directly, basically saying you're setting a terrible example to children. Be aware what you're doing and where. You know, they are actually saying all that, but there's a bit where he says, when I walk to school, I'd be watching you. And somebody playing a gang member goes, word! Most <laughs> ridiculous voice imaginable. There's also the video, which sadly isn't online at the moment. It seems to have been taken down from YouTube due to a copyright claim, but not uploaded on the Crisscross Vivo. It's really odd because it's got them in the middle of the hood with like sort of grainy black and white shots of kids chasing each other with guns and police car windows smashed in and so on. But again, it's got adults playing a gang who are seen bobbing their heads in time to the music, which I'm sure all the menacing, threatening types on corners actually did. And at the end, one by one, they all disappear in time to the repeated It's a Shame. You know, there's a camera flash and then one of them will be gone. A bit like the reverse of, like, the start of the Sullivans. <laughs> but I can't work out the symbolism there. Should we call Roland Barth? I don't know what they were trying to say. So that overstated video and the silly bits in the lyrics, I think, did for it, which is, ironically, a shame. Yes, that that's the real shame here. <laughs> Jermaine Dupree, of course, would uh, later go on to work with Mariah Carey, Usher and Destiny's Child. So it was all downhill from Criss Cross, really. Um, <laughs> you, you, you quite Never right. hit the of I missed the bus again. I think they have sort of retrospectively kept a little bit of their cultural cachet because Jump still mm. comes on and still still tears it up. You know, even in, in serious sort of dance and hip-hop clubs, that's considered to be a good song because it is a good mm. song. I think it sounds fantastic, Jump. It's really hard record. It's not their fault that everyone else started sampling I Want You Back immediately after that. You know, everyone from Naughty by Nature, who were good, to PJ and Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> who were PJ and Duncan. Yes. 
And it's not their fault. They were young and making records. I mean, there are people making much worse records around then. If you ever go through a top 40 from around that time, you'll hear lazy dance records where they've just sampled a bit from an advert or a bit from an old kids' TV theme. It's like musical youth, really. They were a good, credible band. And, you know, if anyone wants to snigger at them, I ask you to go and listen to Mash It! The Youth Mash It! Man from, I think, their second album, which is right out there, or the Peel session they did. I think another problem, though, I'll be careful I'll say this, was they got sucked into the whole Michael Jackson thing. He had them in the video for Jam. I think you might talk about collaborating with them. Irrespective of what, you know, people might have to read into that retrospectively, when you get sucked into that showbiz world, your credibility goes just like that. Yeah. I mean, did people have much respect for Slash after you played on Jam? No wonder he went and formed Slash a Snake Pit you know, to, to get some credibility back by being unlistenable. No amount of snake pitting will get that stink off, I can tell you that much. Don't forget that you can find the full versions of all of these shows and much more besides at timworthington.org. In the first of two Christmas extras, podcaster Phil Catterall joined me to talk about the often overlooked Christmas specials of a couple of legendary radio comedy shows and he had some surprising thoughts on one in particular. But yeah, so I listened to the first on the hour and I loved it straight away. I was obsessed with it and there were five in that first run and then it was on on Christmas Day and I was so excited. It's interesting because it's not quite like the other shows. It's a bit more like they're having a bit of a laugh. There's a bit of an end of term feel to it. I'm going to go further I think a lot of it is quite bad listening to it again just recently. There's a prank phone call in it to the RSPCA, which I think is dreadful. There's no joke to it. There's Well, there's one joke. There's one joke at the end that I particularly enjoyed, which was the, where she lists the dog's trust and things like that. And he, re- he replies, yeah, I've always had my suspicions about those organisations. <laughs> yeah. but, but the rest of the call is just like, what's the joke? I don't understand what the joke is for this. And I found it funny when I first heard it. It's just, it's lost me now. Maybe this was not what you were expecting from this conversation, but all the actual written stuff I quite like. The prank call is just, Well, I do like, I'm going to say, there's a bit where there's an extended parody of Breakaway, which I was rolling on the floor laughing when I very first heard this, because I can't remember what, there was something my dad used to listen to on Radio 4 every Saturday morning. So Radio 4 would be on mm. when we rolled out of bed, because, you know, I was like 16 when On The Hour was first on. You know, we, we'd all stagger downstairs, and he'd just leave it on. And then Breakaway would come on with that dreadful Charleston <laughs> evening, you know, Let's do the breakaway, come on and shake away, it's got the grooviest syncopation. And it was a travel show, for some reason, on Saturday morning, presented by Bernard Fork from TV's Now Get Out of That. And the only time I remember thinking there was anything good about it was one week he was ill. Uh, no, that's not the cool bit about it. <laughs> ah. He was ill. Bill Oddy, they must have just dragged him in off the street. was presenting <laughs> it and he said, you might be asking yourself, what's a goodie doing presenting Breakaway? <laughs> I wouldn't call it a savage parody because it's just poking fun at it. But there's a, there's a brilliant parody of the theme song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's time to go away on the jolly holiday. Go away, go away, bloody go away. But there's Fox Pops 
is in that where he talks to people about whether something is a suitable holiday destination. They're clearly just people walking around the streets <laughs> of London who have been amused by it. And the one that really gets me is a guy who just says at the end for no reason, and a very good bus. Yes. <laughs> yes. And also elsewhere in the show, there are Vox Popses with people who... It's the character Jimmy Tinker, who was normally he... When they sent up Radio 4's You and Yours, the consumer programme. Yes. Jimmy yeah. Tinker was the presenter of that. But he goes out to interview those brave people who'll be working on Christmas Day. <laughs> and he's stopping all these old people. who are getting quite a lot, but there's one in particular who appears to think that if he doesn't vehemently deny it, he will be made to work on Christmas Day. He says, you're wrong, really. That, that, that's... <laughs> it's the second one that I, I, I like. the second one of those slightly more, because... It, because the second one ends with still then hello (laughs) (laughs) i looked up the theme song to breakaway and apparently it's from a film that was destroyed in a fire (laughs) (laughs) i did not know this it's it's destroyed deliberately in a fire by me there was there was there was a a fire at one of the fox studios buildings where they stored all the films and the specific film that that song is from was destroyed as well as many others you know but it's just it was just one of those weird wikipedia journeys where you're like what's this where's that from what's oh fire okay (laughs) but yes it does end with something that has a bit more oomph to it from lee and herring i assume because it's uh yeah Yeah, there's very little, actually, the inherent material in this. I think because they were working on another show at that point. But there's the... Obviously, they did the Green Desk, which has got have sex with me and save a tree. Yes. Where Lombard <laughs> Gnarly, the lumberjack, says if people have sex with him, he can't chop down trees. But yeah, right at the end, there's the... When they used to do the American news reports, I'm still amazed they got away with some of these now. But this one of the Daimler Jeffries ones. Yes. Where... Bear in mind, I don't think Jeffrey Dahmer had even gone on trial yet. Daimler Jeffries, a serial killer, asked to be executed, dressed as Father Christmas, with fairy lights, with children watching. <laughs> they nail the cross way Americans report these things so brilliantly. Four-year-old Mary Jo Brooke pulls the lever, and Daimler moves from death row to his death throes. This is one Santa Claus the kids will very definitely see go up the chimney. Barbara Wintergreen, CBN News, Milwaukee Penitentiary. Brilliant acting in it as well from Patrick Marber as Daimler Jeffries, who I'm going to say Patrick Marber does not get enough credit for how good an actor he was in on the hour and the day to day. I think he probably does for the day to day because he's got Peter O'Hanrahan yeah, there, yeah. which is of all the best bits of that show, that's definitely the one that sticks with me more more than anything else. But yeah, you're probably right for on the hour. He's, he he does some very very good work in that. I think for a long time it was probably overshadowed amongst people who were fans of Lee and Herring by the the feud that they had. <laughs> which even if you didn't really know who Patrick Marble was when you were watching the their BBC Two show, the fact that they'd got you know him in the gallery being being <laughs> murdered and things was was a hint that you were not supposed to like this person. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the story of apparently they sort of made up a couple of years ago. Right. And it was precipitated by Patrick Marper saying that I think his kids had seen some fist of fun on YouTube. <laughs> said, Why do these men hate you? <laughs> ben Baker. Phil's co-host on Don't Let's Chart joined us for the other Christmas extra, which took a look at the original Now the Christmas album, and in particular why you don't often find it in its original form these days. What's interesting really about this album is it set the template for every Christmas compilation since, but it in itself is kind of like a relic. You kind of, you look at it and you miss the simplicity, you know, where everything is eight discs now. 
And this is two sides of vinyl with, I think, 18 tracks in total. They're crammed on as well, if you look at the vinyl. But that's it. It is sad, though, that they've all just focused around this. And my first thought was, why didn't they do not just updated versions of this album, but updated the Christmas album, where my immediate thought was... A couple of years later, you could have had one with Santa Claus is on the dole on, Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. I'm serious oh, there. Yes. I'm not joking. Think of how no. well I was born on Christmas Day by St. Etienne would be known if it had been yeah. on a later now album. But that just disappeared. I mean, to be fair, we would have had to have Merry X-Mess by Rotterdam Termination Sword. <laughs> I would quite like people to continue body. listening to music and not just like writhe around on the floor with foam coming out of their mouths. <laughs> <laughs> don't! Don't! <laughs> but isn't it, isn't it quite odd that they've never deviated from this? And yet... In its original form, for a couple of reasons, this hasn't been available since it was first out. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, one reason. Let's get it out of the way. There's a song on here which I don't even ever want to say what it's called or who it was by. I mean, I would compare it to a couple of years ago when we did, I think it was... Was it when we did Why Won't You or was it one of the earlier advent things we did? But at the end of one of them, for a joke, we put this song... I would not do that now. No, no, I, uh, yeah. It's... I'm not berating our younger selves for no, that. No, no. I'm not I'll, no platforming what, me I'll, in I'll... retrospect. It just it felt right as a joke then, and it doesn't now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the entire environment has changed. I'll tell you what, to make it a little less obvious, I'll swap his first initial and his second <laughs> initial around. So... <laughs> Uh, another rock and roll Christmas, which would have been very, very new at that point. Yes, like, that's, yeah, de- yeah. that's December '84, and that was a big hit. What I love about not that song in particular, but now the Christmas album, is you know how old a copy is as to whether it's on there or not. And I was shopping last year, and they were playing this version, you know, Knock Another Rock and Roll Christmas. And I thought, <laughs> you really need to update. But a couple of other songs have disappeared <laughs> due to rights reasons, because I think they've ended up on other compilations. But the, the Queen one, thank God it's Christmas, which you don't hear that often. And for a Queen song, I quite like. I'm, I'm famously not fussed on Queen. That's a toned down version of it, but it's better we don't get into trouble with this. But I don't, I don't object to that at all. <laughs> That's gone. Greg Lake has disappeared a couple of times from it. I think John and Yoko have disappeared from some iterations of it as well. It's interesting, actually, because I believe in Father Christmas is one of those that really dipped out of fashion for a long time. And I didn't hear it anywhere, and I've started hearing it again in the last sort of five years on the radio. And I don't know if it's because we've decided that it's okay to like Emerson, Lake and Palmer now are... Well, part of the problem is that fucking Jim Davidson kept going on about them all the time. Yeah, (laughs) did not help. And I think he probably had him on... If there was ever an endorsement, you didn't want it to be him. Well, yeah, that's it. I I think he probably would have had him on the Generation Game or something to play it. Go do your song. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, sus- I suspect it sort of it dipped out of rotation and it came back with you like this. And if there's anything <laughs> that will get people not interested in the song, it's people saying, oh yeah, no, let's listen to it again. Like the Whamageddon thing, which is always happening yeah. now. So I have a friend who was like, I actively love that song. I will listen to that because it makes me feel Christmassy and warm and that. And it's like, cool. I enjoy it because it's a fun, it's just a bit of da- it's a daft game, you know, if you yeah. play it. But 
it is fair enough that as wham songs go that is bottom half easily yes it's very repetitious you know and also you never hear everything she wants <laughs> which again i'm not fussed on wham but i like everything yeah she no wants. it's a good song it's, it's, it's good it's a weird one because again i think i enjoy the whamageddon thing because people kept saying especially when george michael died you love that you know you love what and it's like it's fine, but he's written lots of better songs. And it's not even his first appearance on this compilation, because obviously he's part of Band-Aid. I look at what returns to the top 40 every year, because at the moment, as we're recording this, if you look at the top 40, I reckon there's about 15 Christmas songs in there. And it's always Wham! and Mariah Carey that do yeah. the best. And the Pogues. Because they've be kind of been allowed. They're allowed. You know, we've always talked about, oh, there's classic pop classics. Like the stuff which is on top of the pops, which is the repeats on BBC4, where we go, yeah, great, we've heard it a thousand times. Yeah. I like it because it's got all the other stuff on it. It's got the pair metal yeah. and it's got the mad soul songs you've forgotten about and R&B you couldn't do because the sampling would cost a million quid now. And you know, it's just like, it's a fascinating, <laughs> it's always a time capsule. And I suppose that's what now yeah. the, the Christmas album is as well. Sometimes, unless you're one of those good old days head cases who really does want to go back to a time before the politically correct brigade stopped us from lionising disgraced pop stars and stuffing our faces with tedious bland one day desserts, there's really no way of linking between some of these choices. So if you aren't one of them, and I really hope you aren't if you're listening to this, here's comedian and musician Mitch Benn on the baffling phenomenon of two-stage self-assembly ice cream cones. Ice cream was a very different beast in the 1970s. It, the way it was sold and the way it was consumed was different. It was mainly sold as a sort of individual lolly ices, mainly from like newsagents. And also there were like two principal brands. There was Walls and there was Lion's Maid. They were kind of the Marvel and DC of ice cream uh, <laughs> because shops would sell one or the other, but not both. So there was obviously some kind of deal that you would do with Walls yeah. or Lion's Maid that they would be your ice cream supplier and that never the twain would meet. And my local street shop, Mr. Farthing's on Allerton Road, was a Walls shop. And as such, I would find Lion's Maid shop slightly disorientating. I'm like, oh no, it's a Lion's Maid shop. I don't know which ones I like. Oh, and then you would get, you know, your tubs that you could buy in the supermarket, generally of that rock-hard bright yellow vanilla stuff. The thing was then, how to sell ice cream cones, still a very popular ice cream format, within this ice cream vending framework. Because the way one gets an ice cream cone now, even then, of course, you could get ice cream cones from the ice cream van, where you get that weird semi-fredo gelatinous stuff that apparently Margaret Thatcher invented but of course you're not going to get that in a news agent because a news agent is not going to install one of those machines and you're kind of your gelateria ice cream parlors where they've got it all in the big buckets under glass and then they scoop it out to the proper waffle cones again that had not yet appeared so the only way of getting an ice cream uh, the way they finally got round it i guess was the cornetto by packing the ice cream all the way down to the bottom of the corner and then sealing the whole thing in paper you could finally sell ice cream cones out of the big chest freezer in a news agent's and I remember the, and I guess Cornetto is what finally put paid to the item I'm about to describe. Because I remember a Cornetto emerging in about 1977, 1978, and also horrifying people by how expensive it was, <laughs> because it was about 30p for a Cornetto, if you remember. Yeah. And this, and this was at a time when ice creams were like 
8p. So Cornetto is just like an outrageous extravagance. Previous to that, what they had was this. And the place I particularly remember buying these was the Cafe Stroke ice cream kiosk in the middle of Calderstones Park. Whoa, that's brought back memories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, I you mean it, it was, was actually open at one point? Oh, yeah. It seems to be shuttered. No, I know, I know. It, it, the, the, the ice cream the, in, in Calderstones Park, which is in the bit of Liverpool where Tim and I grew up, there is a big old kind of stately home in the middle of it. I suspect the park was, was originally the grounds of this home. And when I was very, very little, there was a cafe opening there. There's another cafe opening there now, but it's in a slightly different part of the park. It's around the back of the Japanese garden in a kind of stables. But um, they're renovating Calderstones Hall right now. So hopefully it's going to be because um, they also had a kind of weird open air stage around the back of it where they used to put shows on in the summer. Yes. Yeah. Um, I yeah. saw Candy Flip perform there. Once. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. God, that's extraordinary. I'm mean, too, too many eras clashing into each other now. But, <laughs> but anyway, that is the place I principally remember buying these. Here was the solution that was found to selling ice cream cones from a newsagent's or just cafe. It would be sold in two stages. The proprietor would have behind the counter a supply of rectangular ice cream cones. So <laughs> these are ice cream cones which are basically in the shape of an extended flattened pyramid so it tapers to a point at the far end but then it has four flat diverging sides ending in a rectangular aperture so this is what you've got you've got a weirdly rectangular ice cream cone they would be kept in a kind of cardboard box behind the counter and if you wanted an ice cream cone you would get that from the proprietor and from the freezer you would get something which looked for all the world like a small block of butter <laughs> and what it was was a rectangular slab of vanilla ice cream and it was then up to you to carefully unwrap this slab of vanilla ice cream at one end feed that end into the rectangular aperture of that rectangular ice cream cone and then ease the paper off the other end of this block of ice cream. And then, congratulations, you have now assembled your ice cream cone. It's this two-stage self-assembly ice cream cones. And I don't know what the hell made me think of those. But I remember that that's how, if you wanted an ice cream cone, before the rise of the Cornetto, if you wanted to get an ice cream cone from a newsagent, if you didn't want a strawberry midi and you didn't want a Sky Ray or any of the other sort of ice lolly variants, you wanted some actual ice cream, that's what you did. There was another option, though, which was you could have gone to the classic yeah. cinema on Allerton Road oh, and I got did. a King Cone without going to see the film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which well, I did more than once. The classic was where I saw everything. There's a fascinating show on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us, which yes. uh, has, you know, anybody who's into this podcast should definitely have that. It's not all applicable if you're British because some of it is about toy lines that didn't really happen here. But the one which is about Star Wars is quite fascinating because it, it, it outlines something which I've forgotten. It's the reason Star Wars was the first movie to be heavily merchandised is you didn't bother making merchandise for movies because movies literally existed for a week before the advent of the multiplex a movie came out it was on your local flea plate for a week the week rolled round and something else was on so there was no point merchandising movies because movies occupied the popular consciousness for literally seven days you know you merchandise tv shows in the 70s because they were on for a good few months a year and they'd probably be back next year 
So it was worth producing an entire line of merch for it. It didn't even occur to anybody to make, because, I mean, one of the things that the show is about is, of course, the fact that the movie Star Wars came out in, in, in 77. There was this mad rush to get merch lines on, and they couldn't actually get them in the shops in time for Christmas. So you ended up having to buy, basically, certificates. You know, this is to certify that you've actually bought Luke Skywalker, although he's not going to be in the <laughs> shop until February. You know, they actually they actually had to sell like certificates for Star Wars figures in Christmas 77 because it's only after the movie came out it occurred to everybody that it was the biggest merchandising opportunity of the 20th century because people didn't make movie merch because movies didn't last long enough in the popular consciousness. They came out, they were on for a week and they went away. Weird, isn't it? Well, I just want to dial back a bit to your point about Walls and Lions May being like the Marvel yeah, PC of ice cream. They were. Which yes. one was which? Because I've got a theory about which was which. Walls was Marvel and Lions Made was DC. <laughs> Exactly, because I always you. saw <laughs> Lions Made as being... A, it always felt a bit kind of goody two-shoes Lions It felt a bit made. austere, didn't it? It felt yes, a bit austere. Yeah. Walls was funkier. Anarchic. Yeah. Walls was a bit anarchic, and Lions Made felt a bit uptight and austere. Much as Marvel, certainly in the 70s, was much funkier than DC. DC always felt a bit stuffy. You know, even now, Marvel comics seem to belong in the 70s, and, and DC seems to belong in the 40s. I think that's possibly one of the reasons they're having such difficulty getting any levity into the DC movies, because those characters don't lend themselves to levity as well as the, the, the Marvel ones do. Absolutely because they're not. they're not being thought up by Stan Lee, who, whatever else he was, was a damn good time. Stanley knew how to enjoy himself, and that used to <laughs> and that used to come through the com the comic books that Stanley was having the best time making all this stuff. DC often feels a bit worthy, you know, and I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why they're having real difficulty trying to settle on a tone for the DC movies, whereas the Marvel stories are just much more immediately cinematic. They just are. How do you think Stanley would have coped with the two stage self assembly ice cream? <laughs> I don't think he would have bothered. First of all, he probably would have sent some minions out to some pro <laughs> to some proper. Italian gelateria and got him the real thing. <laughs> Steve Ditko, on the other hand, would have thought that ice creams were a decadent. <laughs> <laughs> he'd, he'd have been like that. No, he'd have been like that bit in head where Peter Talk holds the ice cream until it melts. Yes, yes, yes. Jack Kirby would have designed his own ice cream. Jack Kirby probably, <laughs> yeah, in fact, that's probably where we got the Cornetto. <laughs> it was an ice cream cone designed by Jack Kirby. And we're staying on the confectionery theme for a much requested return appearance by writer Daryl McLean, who's haunted by vivid memories of something that appears to have entirely vanished from history. I'll have an E number, please, Bob. Before I begin, I'm not lying. This is true. This is real. This, I can't even find any evidence that this exists no. on the internet. It is not me going mad. It's not some personal hell. There was, for a very brief moment in the early 90s, Blockbusters confectionery. There was Bob Holness bubblegum with the Blockbusters slogan, picture of Bob Holness on the front and bubblegum. And a one, you got a quiz card in it as well. There was Bob Holness confectionery. And do you know what? It wasn't around for very long because I don't think people wanted to buy it. <laughs> so it was Blockbusters themed, was it? Was it like gaming cards in it? it was, no, not gaming cards. It was just normal bubblegum card. It was bubblegum with a card, not cards, a card in a little packet. I think it was a, a weirdly low price for something then. Maybe it just it was reduced to clear. 
But I seem to remember it being something ridiculous like 5p a packet. Big picture of Bob Holness on the front and the logo because it was quite merchandise quite a lot. Was it a graphic or was it a stylized two-color rendition of his face? Oh, it was a photo. I remember buying a lot of it because it was cheap. Not because I wanted it or because I liked blockbusters necessarily. Although you watched it, it was on after CITV. But I bought it because it was cheap and, you know, it was revolting. It is the most revolting confectionery I have ever tasted. And I tasted a lot in my childhood. I was brought with an anti-waste ethic so i made sure i had to chew it all i think at one point i put about 10 pieces in just to get rid of it so i hadn't wasted it to myself <laughs> so i was there chewing a tent a giant revolting tennis ball it tasted as bob holness looked on the packet what did they actually have to do with blockbusters though what was on the card it was a blockbusters grid if i'm correctly remembering and a clues of words you could find in it so kind of Almost like a word search type of thing. So nothing to do with the actual Blockbusters gameplay? No, and you couldn't put them together and make a game. It wasn't like you couldn't really build them or collect them. There wasn't much you could do. If you had 20, you'd just have 20 word searches and some disgusting bubblegum. I've got one overarching question about this, which is, I mean, I've tried and tried to find that information about it. Search everywhere I can. The three things that I keep finding are more covers of Blockbuster by The Suite than I knew existed, (laughs) including compilation album blockbusters exclamation mark which i still have somewhere blockbuster video stores or gifts of captain marvel <laughs> crashing into a blockbuster store from captain marvel which obviously i've got no real problem with seeing but that's making me wonder was it around that time was it when captain marvel set was it 1995 ish it was towards right towards the end of blockbusters being on did blockbusters last that long to 95 i don't think it did because 1995 was the year that bob holness is raised the roof won the Lee and Herring's Mediocrity Awards on Radio <laughs> 1. So I think it finished by then. This must date from the hand jive era blockbusters, I'm sure of it. Oh, definitely. Definitely was. And I reckon we're talking about 93. But that year, I, I think it was the first time I really had access to pocket money. So I was just buying crap, whether it was terrible novelty confectionery. I, I essentially wanted stuff off the telly. But blockbusters confectionery was something I bought with very early pocket money because I got a lot of things for probably 50p or maybe a bit more or whatever I could find down the back of my grandma and granddad's sofa, which is usually a source of pocket money because my granddad has holes in his pants. <laughs> I completely forgotten that genuinely a source of income used to be the fact that my granddad had terrible trousers that leaked all the money out of his pocket. So, because I used to have to go to those every week to stay over for one night a week. The reason, the whole entire reason I bought so many stickers and football cards and trading cards and pogs and stuff was entirely paid for by that, the contents of that sofa. I'm not pushed to think of any other game show that had its own tie-in sweets. I mean, I don't recall there being, you know, the Teleaddicts chocolate assortment or anything. No, and that doesn't even happen now. I think even Millionaire didn't have confectionery. They should have done a Millionaire shortbread for <laughs> In the shape of Chris Tarrant's face. Yes, I was about to say that. Because <laughs> he's kind of short. He's got a short, bready complexion anyway now. So I think maybe he is short, bread. Maybe that's why they can't use him anymore. He's gone off. Word of wisdom, if you ever remember an old advert and you try and work out and try to remember it, you'll probably find it was done by Aldman, who seemed to, if you look into it, they seem to make basically every advert that was ever on. They made the Lurpak one, didn't they? They did make the Lurpak with um, Peter Skellen. Is that going to be on the Peter Skellen singing, spread a little happiness. <laughs> that was Peter Skellen. If that's not in the box set, there will be trouble. They better put these Lurpak in the Lurpak years. <laughs> That's the bonus disc. It's being pressed on 180 GSM butter. And staying on the stop motion animation theme, here's something you might not have heard before. 
Me on the Zeitgeist tapes talking to Emma Burnell and Steve Fielding about something very strange that the Clangers got up to in the run-up to the 1974 general election. Yeah, I think the most important thing here, which a lot of people kind of in the political side of things might not pick up on, is the fact that, I mean, you guys will understand the technicalities of this better than I do, but it's my understanding that there was a general election in, I think it was early March 74. In February. February, where there was a hung parliament. And as I understand it, it was almost certainty that another general election would be called very soon. And so broadcasters were technically, because they didn't know when it would be called, on sort of that, under that weird standby that they're always under in anticipation of a general election, where they don't say anything to, you know, inflammatory or possibly biased or prejudiced. Nobody write in and tell me how the BBC is biased. Thank you. That's a dispute for another day. But the thing here was, I mean, it affected what the BBC in particular were doing for those six months. Well, more than six months, actually, in really weird ways. I mean, one thing that really quite timely and topical is they just started repeating the first ever repeat of Series 3 of Monty Python's Flying Circus. One of those episodes, when it first went out, the only time this was ever seen, it started with a choreographed party political broadcast with you know men in leotards coaching the politicians on how to tap dance in time with their words, followed by a Terry Gilliam animation of Heath and Wilson dancing the Sugar Plum Fairy. <laughs> they had to cut that out. That's been missing for nearly 50 years. And everyone thought it was wow. gone completely. But in the Blu-ray that has literally about 10 minutes ago just come through my door... So I'll be watching it straight after <laughs> this. They've found it and they've reinstated it. But Vote for Frogler has never resurfaced since 1974, apart from you can now watch it on the BFI website. But there's a lot of very odd reasons for that. The main thing is, I've got to give credit here to a guy called Clive Banks, who's a really prolific, long-standing chronicler. It helped me to say words properly. Chronicler of cult TV, who actually, as far as I'm aware... Because people knew Vote for Frogler existed because it was, I think it was four years after the actual two series of Clangers were on. Mm. He was the first person who went up to Oliver Postgate and said, what was this and what's it all about? And he got a quote from Oliver Postgate that said, I was so angry in 1973, the winter of discontent, when the miners' union and the government were locked in mortal combat and the economy was going into the ground. I honestly thought, having been in Germany at the end of the war and seeing what happened when the economy collapsed completely, I got really frightened. So I thought the process of government was completely buggered. Note he said buggered by inter-party squabbling. So I went to the BBC and said, can I do a little clangers film about the election? So... I'm not even convinced the general sense is that it was to explain what was happening to kids in terms of why were there all these men in suits all over TV shouting all the time, making children's TV be cancelled randomly while they went on and on. I actually think it was more a platform for his opinions of the situation on his own terms, but delivered to kids. Which explains a bit more about this disappearance, because it's unclear whether Peter Furman was actually involved in it or not. There were no credits on it, which is really weird. Mm. It's not a small film production. It's a BBC production. And it doesn't start with the clangers lettering, you know, the gold spangly lettering, which Mm. people have theorised, was that disposed of? No, it wasn't, because Emma, I have a photo of you admiring that lettering a couple of years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Tim and I went to visit a small films exhibition at the Bethnal Green Museum of Childhood a couple of years ago, uh, which was great fun. (laughs) Yeah, so so the episode, probably 
I mean, anyone who wants to, as as Tim said, you can just go just Google vote for Frogland yeah. um, and it's on the BFI website. But very briefly um, for our listener who, who may, may not wish to do that just just right now. Um, essentially, it's exactly the same setup as as a conventional um, episode of the Clangers. And it starts with the kind of noise from from Earth. You can hear Edward Heath and Sir mm. Keith Joseph, I think, you know, babbling away babbling away and and Oliver Postgate as a narrator that sort of gentle um voice mm. basically he, he takes some he takes the clangers through what an election is because he they're a bit curious as to what all this noise is and and he says what well, you haven't got a government you know um who's got who, who rules you know on this on this uh, moon and it seems that the clangers are living in a kind of period uh, sort of they're they're, they're, anarch they're anarchists nobody, Anarchist nobody is the ruler <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're kind of, they're getting along without government. That seems to be what's going on. I hope you've enjoyed that collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. Don't forget that you can find the full shows and the full version of the Zeitgeist tapes and plenty more besides at timworthington.org. And while you're there, why not help support Looks Unfamiliar by buying one of my books? Anyway, see you soon. Everyone go and steal this stuff and then give it to other people and also listen to it yourselves. That seems like the way to fix this. And as we've already said, I'll be listening to Phil the Hour Christmas special on Christmas Day. Phil, will you be listening to Claire in the community? No, I will be burning any copies I can find of Claire in the community. <laughs> A series that is somehow commercially available while most of this is not. One by Tim Worthington, the story of comedy at BBC Radio 1, from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details at timworthington.org.